Word, I'm gonna say the word. In the beginning was the word. What? Word. 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 Was the word. From the studios of KJZZ in Tempe, Arizona, welcome to Word, a podcast about the literary arts in the state and the region. Here's your host, Tom Maxidon. Coming up on Word, it's Nahai Ramo, National Haiku Writing Month. In a way, the haiku world is sort of divided into camps where people have aesthetic positions. Once again this year, we celebrate the art of writing haiku. Dumpster diving. She climbed into me and kept what others threw away. But first... You may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? Well, if you weren't around last year, we introduced folks to Nahai Raimo on our first episode of Word last year. It's the brainchild of Sammamish Washington writer Michael Dylan Welch. He launched the event a decade ago and joined us for our season one opener... In 2010, it was October, just before NaNoWriMo started in November of that year, and it occurred to me that there ought to be a National Haiku Writing Month. And I thought that February made the most sense because it's the shortest month for the shortest genre of poetry. And so I got the domain name, set up a Facebook page, and just started it without much expectation. And I thought, well, okay, what do you do? Well, how about one haiku a day? The idea of writing regularly every day rather than 28 haiku on the last day helps get you in the haiku habit. And that's what I wanted to do. And so I set it up and we had the very first one in February of 2011. And on the very first day, someone, and I sure wish I could remember who this was, someone suggested, oh, it would be nice if we had a writing prompt. And so I made one up and offered writing prompts for the rest of the month. And at the end of the, towards the end of the month, someone said, this is so much fun. Let's keep doing it. Why do we have to stop at the end of February? And so I invited uh, a guest prompter to provide prompts for the month of March. And that has continued every year. You can find more info at the Nahai Rimo Facebook page. But front and center for word on this season three opener is KJZZ's second annual haiku writing contest. It's time for the second annual KJZZ haiku writing contest. A haiku is a style of poem, often made up of 17 syllables and three lines. Submit your haiku about the state of Arizona, and we just might read it on air. Visit haiku.kjzz.org for details. Again, you can enter your haiku about the state of Arizona at haiku.kjzz.org. Think about all those things that state could mean. For instance, statehood, which we celebrate the anniversary of every February. Possibly a political link to the state of Arizona. Or maybe just a mindset about the state at large. And now, on with word. For 36 years, the Arizona Matsuri has been held in Phoenix. The two-day free festival celebrates the unique culture of Japan, its arts, music, dance, food, and also the results of their own haiku writing contest. Getting the idea? February is a busy, busy month for haiku. Well, the deadline for that contest closes February 9th. 
Recently, I caught up with Kelly Moore, who is the Consul for Japan in Phoenix and one of the organizers of the Matsuri, which has moved to Steel Indian School Park this year and will be held February 22nd and 23rd. Consul Moore joined me at the KJZZ Studios to talk about the festival, Japanese culture, and the art of haiku. But I began our discussion by asking what are some of the duties of a consul? I'm a representative of the Japanese government in Phoenix and answer actually to the consulate in Los Angeles, which is the main one. And oh, some of the duties, if, if Japanese citizens get into some sort of trouble, meaning maybe an accident or, or lost passports, something like that, I'm there to help them. And also part of the duties are to do cultural and sort of economic promotion between Japan and Arizona. Tell me a little bit about some of your experiences over the last 15 years in that role. In that role, well, I got appointed only because I was active in things Japanese in Phoenix. And they are five-year appointments. And during the time, I mean, there have been things, as I say, something simple like a lost passport, but also kind of promoting you know, international flights between Phoenix and, and Japan is is part of some of the duties we do. You know, I look at dealing with the Arizona Matsuri as part of my duty. And it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's sometimes a little bit more controversial topics, example, whaling. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. And, and I have to answer to that. And, you know, sometimes it's a little bit hard to defend, but there you go. Right. You know, uh, we will talk about the Matsuri here in just a bit. Um, you know, one of the curious points for me was, in running the numbers, I found that there was about 7,400 people of Japanese descent residing in the entire state of Arizona, I about think, 7 I think, million. Is I that think close? a little bit more, okay. probably. Probably a little bit more than 10,000. So the natural question becomes, you know, with the population centers of people with Japanese descent that are higher around the country, why Phoenix? That's, that's easy to answer. So Los Angeles is the center, mm-hmm. and they just have no representation over here. And so, again, for Japanese nationals, and not, really not Japanese Americans, Japanese nationals, you know, if they get in trouble, I, they can call me. And so the consulate will have a representative. I'm the one for Phoenix. There's actually one in San Diego, which is not very far from Los right. Angeles. Also one in Las Vegas. And throughout the country, there are 34. And so, an example, if the Chicago consulate might have somebody in Iowa or doing Iowa, Kansas or something like that, where there isn't a big population, not enough to have a a full-blown office. Tell me a little bit then about your experience living in Japan. As I understand, you did not speak a single word of Japanese, correct, when you you moved there? I I didn't know a thing about Japan. Mm -hmm. Out of college, actually sitting around with friends one day, we're going, what are you doing next year? This is our senior year, and, you know, one friend is going to... I'm, I'm going to go to law school. You know, a second one said, I'm going to sell insurance. And one friend said, I'm going to Japan. I said, what's that all about? And he sort of told me. He, he had gotten a job as an English teacher at a small school. And he gave me the address, and I wrote to them. It was more of a sense of adventure than anything. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew nothing about it. He could have said, I'm going to Brazil. Right. Had you ever been abroad anywhere before? No, I, I with two friends in college, we went to Europe mm-hmm. for, you know, summer tour. But no, not really. And certainly Asia is diametrically different than Europe. You know, my first window into Japanese culture was through art and poetry. 
specifically Basho's haiku. I can remember reading haiku at a very, very young age. And we are celebrating National Haiku Month here in the month of February uh, with a haiku writing contest. And the Matsuri also has a haiku writing contest. What do you like about the form of haiku? Well, haiku, it's, it, in my mind, it's kind of an esoteric form. I mean, there are people who are who are sort of devotees of it and, and quite a bit better. But haiku, well, actually, Japanese history they did not have a written language in the beginning, and they sent scholars to China who came back with the – that's how the Chinese characters ended up in Japan. And they adopted some some Chinese poetical forms. And then as they developed their own sort of written language and kind of evolved, the haiku came out. And the haiku, are, it's a poetic structure, and there's really, really no rhyming words. It's more sort of use of rhythm or measure – something like that. There's always a reference to nature in there. And the poems use images of things we can see, smell, and touch. But I brought a couple of examples of ones, if you Absolutely. like to hear them. Yeah. And this was written by a third grader. She wrote, a flash of lightning, bright sky with a loud boom, mice scatter and run. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. I, I could just really hear the childlike quality in that. You know, if you didn't tell me that she was that young, I would have assumed that it was probably a younger writer. And that just really, really connects to this kind of similar memories that I had when I was about that age. Yeah. And, and other ones... It's really fun. And, and most of the ones that I took examples of dealt mm-hmm. with Arizona. And that's, you know, in Japan, obviously they don't. Sure. But, you know, desert redemption, tumbleweeds blowing my way. When it rains, it pours. <laughs> and, and just the imagery of some of these. And very matter of fact, too, yeah. uh, the way that the, the kid would sort of experience things. I love that. That's beautiful. And those were poems that were submitted for last year's uh, yes, contest? Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the 36th year for yeah. the Matsuri, which I believe means festival. The word Matsuri translates as festival. So. And it features all things Japanese. And the beautiful culmination of this haiku writing contest occurs at this festival because you actually exhibit these in a way, right? Yes, there's always a little d- display area with a d- with sort of the kind of the winners put onto a nice little plaque and everyone goes around and reads them. And the person in charge after the Matsuri, he compiles a book. You know, I want to say one thing. Uh, we have our date of February 22nd, 23rd. And in past, we have been at Heritage Square in downtown Phoenix. Right. And this year, we have moved to Steel Indian Park, mainly because of, of spacing. You know, it shows that even 36 years running, you're growing and you need a new space. We, we had to, we moved. Kelly Moore, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word and talking to us about the Matsuri Festival and the love of haiku, especially on this month, National Haiku Writing Month. Thank you so much, Kelly. Oh, I appreciate being here. Thank you. The Arizona Matsuri happens February 22nd and 23rd, and you can find out more information on our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. KJZZ is investigating your questions through the Q&AZ project. A listener asked how a street name in the northeastern part of the state got its sinister name. Somehow they got in an argument over this card game, and so a fight ensued. Shots were fired, and the next morning... People walking by said, boy, it looks like somebody threw a bucket of blood in there. If you're curious about our state, you can ask a question at qaz.kjzz.org. I'm Jay Ellison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on KJZZ. 
with true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world. Moss shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. Moss stories aren't part of the disposable daily information flow. They stick with you. The Moth Radio Hour airs Saturday at 3 on KJZZ. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Thanks for joining us during Nahai Raimo, National Haiku Writing Month. Miriam Sagan is a Santa Fe poet and a haiku enthusiast. She hosts a blog called Miriam's Well. We caught up with her recently on the phone on the final day of her writer's residency in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. And I began by asking why she started her blog. Thank you for asking. It's basically a container for different projects. It's my work, the collaborative work that I do. I'm covering Santa Fe, the art scene there, particularly the west side, which is the rail yard, which is where I live. But I've said it's essentially it's my community, whatever that means. And I have a lot of contributors um, from all over the world, um, people I've never met in India, and my nephew, who I know well in Ohio. <laughs> so, <laughs> Specifically, we wanted to talk to you about the art form of haiku. Do you remember the first time that you wrote a haiku? I do. I wrote haiku in the sixth grade. I had a teacher, a very strict teacher, who tried to teach me to spell, and I have dyslexia, and I still can't spell, but she taught us haiku, and it was wonderful. I mean, I remember I just, I fell in love with it because it didn't rhyme, and it was short, and kids could do it, so that was my introduction. There are many different thoughts on haiku in terms of being exactly 17 syllables and whether they're five, seven, five on each line. Through my discussions with other people, I found that that is really because of translations of Japanese haiku into English and that the syllable count or the total amount of syllables and the notion of three lines is maybe somewhat mythological to the English language. How do you feel about the syllable count and, you know, the, I guess, the graphical presentation of haiku? I take a pretty relaxed attitude towards it. I'm not against formalism, and I'm not against the kind of Americanization of the form. Certainly, historically, it's been 575, three lines in English, but, you know, that actually changed much longer ago than people are willing to admit. Allen Ginsberg was writing one-line haiku many decades ago. In a way, um, haiku is sort of divided, the haiku world is sort of divided into camps where people have aesthetic positions. Um, but I was very influenced by Elizabeth Searle Lamb, who was one of the early members of the haiku community and was called the first lady of haiku. And she was a close friend of mine. And I asked her if she had any advice. And she said, no, because I just do what I want. And that was pretty great advice. So Sounds <laughs> I, like a poet. I don't come down. Yeah, yeah it doesn't. It? I don't come down on one camp or the other. I think both are fine. They're both are functional. Well, I wanted to pick up one of your haiku from your blog, and this is under a section entitled Hiroshima, and I thought this was a beautiful haiku. Hiroshima, today it's just a station on the bullet train. I wrote that when I was in Japan um, about two years ago. 
And, you know, if I use the word Hiroshima, I don't get to the five syllables. And so the rest of it's pretty close. But that sort of speaks to what you were just illustrating there, that you kind of do do what you want. But I thought that was a beautiful poem. What was the inspiration beyond just being there in Hiroshima? Thank you for asking. Um, I had a month in Japan with a creative collaborator who was my daughter, and we were living in Itoshima. And we just, because we were under um, sort of deadline pressure to do a piece, um, we just took one field trip. And we went to um, Hiroshima. As New Mexicans, where the atom bomb was invented, I think it was, you know, there was a kind of heavy onus on it as a pilgrimage. And then I realized how people just say they're going there, and people go there and they go to a restaurant or they go shopping, and how um, it would be as if, you know, every time I heard the word Rome, I thought about gladiators. I mean, time has passed. I'm also really interested in this notion of taking poetry into public spaces or even in, just into nature in general. Last year, I had the opportunity to talk to T.C. Tolbert, who had a haiku installation in the city of Tucson, and I thought it was very clever. These were put on placards and planters throughout the downtown area, and it was just beautiful to kind of meander through the downtown streets and see these placards outside of businesses and public spaces. On your particular blog, you have a section called Teapot Haiku. Some other things included on your blog as well are these stones that are placed out and about. Tell me about these installations, how you came up with the idea, and why you thought it was important to bring haiku sort of back into nature, as it were. Now, there's a tradition of haiku written on stones or engraved in stones in Japan. So it's a fairly natural idea. And also... In Japan and in other cultures, too, prayers are written on paper and, you know, deteriorate and disintegrate into the elements. So I think the idea of putting words out is a pretty natural one. And I'm also, you know, as a person of the Southwest, very influenced by land art, um, by things like spiral jetty, big monolithic words, and, and then by um, echo art, small ephemeral things that do the same thing in the landscape. So... I care about it. I, I like it a lot. The, um, the haiku pathway is 40 haiku on stoneware. The stoneware was done by an artist named Christy Hankst, and we had funding from Witterbitter Foundation for it. And it's just in the central courtyard at um, Santa Fe Community College. It's really pretty, and it's also overlooked. People are like, there's haiku out here? <laughs> yeah, right. there's 40 of them. <laughs> right. I love what you talk about in terms of the permanence of the word and placing that, you know, in the medium of stone and then putting it out there for people to come across. Of course, things will get weathered. Um, but I also yeah. love that haiku can be whimsical, that it can be funny, that it can hit, you know, emotions that are maybe not necessarily, I don't know, deeply reflective and mm-hmm. and and excuse me if I've you know if I've applied that in any way that you don't agree with, but this particular one struck me as sort of a representation of that idea. Peace Park, a twig broom sweeps the wind. I just find that mm. very light-hearted and whimsical. Did that come from that that sort of emotion? You know, it's a it's a good question because, as I'm sure you know, in Haiku writing, humorous haiku, um, you know, is called senryu. 
So really, you divide the form into the more serious and the less serious. And Senryu is usually about the human world. Um, I think there's something in between the two, right? As you would say, it's a lighthearted approach. Haiku definitely runs, you know, along a long emotional gauntlet, but it it's never like super morbid or taking itself super seriously. And so therefore, I think there's a little bit of lightness in most of it. Well, I'm glad you said that because I think a lot of people, when they approach haiku writing, do take it as super serious. And so maybe for those who have never heard of the derivative, well, I don't even want to say a derivative, but an offshoot, the sinuru, um, maybe this is something that they could learn about haiku that they hadn't thought about previously. Yeah, exactly. I mean, sending is really, it's two halves of a whole. And it, a lot of things that are, you know, that if you read them in translation, they are, you know, sort of labeled as haiku or actually senryu. Thanks so much for catching up with this, Miriam. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, too. You can find a link to Miriam Sagan's blog entitled Miriam's Well by going to our website at word.kjzz.org. I'm Tom Maxidon, and you're listening to Word. Count Me In. It's a way for you to financially support the award-winning reporting, entertainment, and music you hear on KJZZ. Just go to countmein.kjzz.org. Thanks to David from Paradise Valley for donating his 2009 Land Rover to support his favorite shows. You can donate your vehicle, too. For more information, visit cars.kjzz.org. Welcome back to Word. I'm Tom Maxidon. Thanks for joining us during Nahai Rimo. A lot of folks have heard of NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month, but maybe not so much about Nahai Rimo. That's short for National Haiku Writing Month, something we're celebrating all month long here on Word and also the show with KJZZ's second annual haiku writing contest. Find out more details on our website at word.kjzz.org. Aaron Johnson is the owner of Lawn Gnome Publishing based in Phoenix. The small press specializes in poetry and graphic-based fiction. In addition to running a business, Aaron has hosted open mic events for 15 years combined in Flagstaff and Phoenix, including something really interesting called Haiku Deathmatch. Recently, Aaron joined me at the KJZZ Studios in Tempe, and I began by asking him to describe what happens during those contests. I do one in April for National Poetry Month. I do one in February for, it's like an erotic haiku uh, death match. And then I do one um, on Halloween every year where people can wear costumes and then they write haiku about their costumes. So it's like a Comic-Con in that way, a Haiku-a-Con or something. It, <laughs> I don't it, know kind, what you call it. it is kind of like that. You know, it... I like haiku the most out of all forms of poetry because it forces people to write very concise, meaningful three-line poems, right? And, uh, you know, you have epic poetry on one side of the spectrum, right? And that's like your Beowulf and your Odyssey, you know, like those really, really long sure. stories, you know. And, and to write a really great epic poem is is uh, an, another challenge. Um, but... I find it's easier to tell a good story than it is to like try to cram as much meaning in those three lines of 17 syllables as possible. And uh, there's no titles allowed. Um, 
it's best two out of three, and it's always judged by audience applause. So I have two haikus go up, haikusters is what we call them, go up against each other um, side by side. We put a mic in the middle. I ask the audience make the sound of one hand clapping <laughs> if they get excited. So it's very serious, you know, when you're in a bar where, like, people are getting kind of loose, you know, and so there's, like, this, like, suppression of excitement, you know, of, like, oh, I can't laugh too loud or I can't, you know, and so it's the poet's job to really try to incite that unmanageable excitement where it, it you crack, you know. So right. there's like some snickering or there's like some mmms, you know, sure. that happen, you know. Is it kind of like the dad joke face off, you know, where you try to get the other person to laugh, one of these stupid sure, jokes, sure. right? You're trying to get the crowd to emote something. Right, right. or like battle rappers, yeah. right, that do like the, the um, what is that called, uh, wild style or uh-huh. something like that, right? Or, um, no, I first heard about this from Tomas Stanton over there at the <laughs> Mesa Arts Center. And about a year ago, he told me about this, and I was like, you know, I've heard of slams and stuff, but I've never heard of a haiku death match. What's yeah. that like? Because it's an extremely compact form, as everyone knows. Right. And how do you, first of all, hold the attention of an uh, of an audience is what I always felt was extremely difficult when I was doing this stuff many, many years ago of like, Am I going to have to read 75 haiku because I've got like 10 minutes up here and it takes about 20 seconds to read right, haiku? Right, right. When we do these haiku death matches, they're all bracketed out, right? So we'll have like 16 performers in the beginning, right? And then it goes down to eight and then it goes down to four and then there's two, right? And so I tell haikusters like in emails before the event, you know, and it does take a lot of prep to execute something like this is you really need 30 good haiku to win, you know, like at least. In 2006, I won a uh, regional haiku competition that was actually Arco Santi, and there was poets from all over the Southwest that came out, Denver, Albuquerque, myself. And uh, to win that, I had to perform 150-something haiku. Wow. Yeah. I don't think I've even written that many haiku (laughs) in my entire lifespan. And let's just say I'm older than you, I think. Yeah. It's fair to say. You also were the recipient of a Phoenix Public Arts grant a few years back in which your haiku was put up on a billboard for everyone to see who right. came through that area. I have it here with me. Would you mind reading it to us? Yeah. Okay, great. Dumpster diving. She climbed into me and kept what others threw away. It's really emotive and not what I expected from the first line. Something that I enjoy immensely about the art form of haiku. I don't want you to tell us the meaning because I don't want to spoil it for people. So tell me a little bit about the inspiration behind that particular haiku. When I first started writing poetry in general, I lived in Flagstaff, Arizona. I was going to NAU um, and you know, a lot of poor college kids get really excited about trying to find creative ways to save money or to, uh, you know, wear cool clothes or have good books or find good records. Right. So that's the the same kind of mentality that drives people out to thrift stores, you know, as like hunter gatherers of cool forgotten tomes, right? Like cool stuff. Um, and, and dumpster diving was kind of like this new trend, I think, or they call it like freeganism even, you know, like people that crack open uh, trash cans in order to find like food that's still pretty good, you know, and, and cook it up. And Food Not Bombs is like a nonprofit that, that kind of uh, talks about why we should do that, you know. Uh, if we're going to waste food, we might as well try to figure out ways to feed people that, that are poor. 
I was thinking a lot at the time about even like uh, call out culture and and uh, breakups and stuff, you know. And we're we're all human, right? And uh, I think that every like like I think every performer that comes up to an open mic uh, is important, right? They all need to be listened to. The same thing it applies, obviously, to just human beings living their lives, right? It's kind of the things that I was thinking about when I wrote that haiku. Yeah, and to me, Open Mic has always been a great community builder for creative folks. Again, not that you have to be a performer and not that everybody that writes poetry or anything for that matter intends to read it aloud. But I've seen, you know, over the course of a number of years, people who start out, you know, very shy and timid and maybe sometimes as soon as a couple months later... They really feel empowered by the voice that they didn't necessarily know that they had. Right. I mean, there can be some amazing experiences, and I think that these things are community builders. When I hear open mic, I think that's what a community should be, right? Open to all sorts of interpretations about this life that we are living in a shared space. Absolutely. And. That discourse is important, too. You know, one of the things I'm always interested in, particularly about haiku, are people's first experiences. Many of them tell me it came from childhood. They had a English teacher, for instance, or just a homeroom teacher that wanted to explore the art form of poetry. And because it's a short form, it seemed natural to sort of teach kids about poetry through a short form. What was it about haiku that interested you? Um, was it something that was like right away immediately, like, wow, this is really cool? Or did it take some time for you to get into? It took some time. And why uh, was that? You know, I... <laughs> I think when I first got into poetry, I was drawn to the creative storytelling aspect of it, especially with slam poetry. And then I really liked uh, storytellers that I've, I've heard on radio or even like Ken Nordine and stuff like, you know, like just like interesting sure. voices and personas, right? And he's the word jazz guy. He's right? the word jazz guy. Yeah. yeah. And I really, really liked how his stories or like his like weird quips, you know, or they they had like this music to it. And I thought that the poetry is what brought that out. But over time, as I was writing and developing my voice, I realized that I I enjoy hearing poetry where every single line is just like an unimaginable concept, whether it's like mastery of language and playing with words or you know, really tight rhymes where you're like, oh man, I didn't see that one coming like that, but that was great. Or like lines that make you scratch your head and, you know, and you're just like, wow, there's just so much meaning there, you know? And when I can just hear them back to back, you know, poems where it's just like line, boom, line, boom, line, boom. It's this great feeling, right? And so haiku was a way to force that, you know, it's these strict, strict confines of like three lines, 17 syllables, should be about nature, you know. You don't have time to waste time. You don't. Right. It's, it's word economy. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, Which is a hallmark of poetry is compaction. You know, that's what separates it from the art forms of fiction writing, even short shorts, for instance, the shortest form of fiction writing. Then you mentioned Ken Nordine, one of my favorite albums ever, and I'm just talking about all albums, is his Colors album. Yeah. Where he just rolls through colors. And I'm, you know, as you were talking just now, I'm thinking about Ken Nordine in the back of my head and about how <laughs> those, you know, the punch of those words mm -hmm. and the imagery that's going on, you can hear the color, the very color that he's talking about right. on that particular album. 
I think a lot of people, and this is just my impression, when it comes to haiku, if they're not interested necessarily in the art form, it might be because of that compaction. They find that extremely difficult. Like maybe they can write, I don't know, couplets out the wazoo. They're just good at rhymes, right, or whatever. Maybe they're just good at sonnets and because they need more space. They need more words. They need a bigger canvas, if you will. But I also think that for whatever reason, sometimes people think that haiku is extremely pretentious. And it's like, you know, well, this is the bow tie on for serious writers of poetry only sure i mean they're kind of like yo mama jokes too though right yeah. like when, when they can you, be. Yeah, yeah if if you if you master them and you you can get used to that those confines it can get to the point where it's just like these short hilarious you know quips um where it does get pretentious is when people start like you know really really thinking about the argument of like, oh, you know, the, it was meant to be about nature, which is like the traditional structure, right? Haiku needs to be 17 syllables. It has to be three lines and it has to be about nature. Um, and then like Americans started getting into, especially Jack Kerouac, right? Fell in love with haiku. And then he was performing on top of jazz, but he's like, you know, we're American, we're people people are part of nature too and that's where it started like getting in this whole new realm of really haiku can be about anything because if we're part of nature if we're living things organisms right then everything that we see experience feel is is what you know we can talk about in haiku and that's that's where those walls kind of got torn down right and even at the haiku death match we don't pay attention to the three lines we only pay attention to the 17 syllables. i was going to ask you that because kerouac's contemporary one of them anyway alan ginsburg who was largely responsible for getting kerouac published because kerouac hated that aspect of, of writing not that he wasn't serious about being published but it's just like oh i gotta go meet with some salespeople, you know yeah but yeah i mean alan was doing one line poetry as a former guest that we heard from earlier in the show talked about and was not necessarily set on the 17 syllables. And as I understand from talking to other people, that is largely a convention of the English translation of Japanese poetry, that they weren't 17 syllables. That's just the way it works out in English pronunciation. And so, you know, the Beats, who were certainly unconventional by every stretch of the imagination, took the art form and kind of exploded it, if you will. Yeah, if you can get out to a haiku deathmatch, if you see one pop up, go to it. They are super fun, um, very different. There's not a lot of them happening throughout the country anymore. It used to be a big national thing in the 90s, and then it kind of died off for a while as people found it really hard to kind of like build a career off of haiku. You know, it's more of like a hobbyist kind of thing. And you have to, I think there takes a certain amount of eccentricity or, or uh, uh, <laughs> gumption that most people don't have in order to tackle writing enough haiku to perform in them. And they're fun events. They're really neat. Well, certainly for that art form, but I would say just poetry in general, it takes quite a bit of fortitude to try and make a living out of it, even if you even can right. for that matter. Yeah, mo- so. Most of us try to figure out something else, whether it's teaching or running workshops right. or hosting events or publishing, right? right. Like, there's always like sidestep ways of making a living as a poet where you could still work on your craft, 
but you have this other thing to pay the bills and make sure that right. <laughs> you know everyone's okay. Not quite like acting and then also being a waiter or a waitress, but yeah, it's, it's actually really similar. similar huh? It's, it's yeah. kind of similar. Okay, yeah. Well, Aaron Johnson, I want to thank you so much for coming to Word. We appreciate what you do for writers all over the valley and all over the nation with your press. Small presses are you know hard to keep going. Uh, so I'm sure we don't have to tell you, but we appreciate you coming to Word. Thanks so much. Thank you. And that'll do it for this edition of Word. You can check out our archive at word.kjzz.org. There's a link to my email address if you have a comment or maybe even a suggestion for a future show. And don't forget to participate in KJZZ's second annual haiku writing contest. The link to the entry form is available on our website. I'm Tom Maxidon, and thanks for listening to Season 3 of Word. Word. Word? Word. Was the word. Thanks for listening to Word from the KJZZ Studios in Tempe, Arizona. You can find all episodes online at word.kjzz.org.